Did God have a baby? Careful. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. Here's another trick question. Did the son begin life in a stable in Bethlehem? It's easy to oversimplify the profound event that we supposedly celebrated Christmas. But if we take time to study and ponder the scriptures, we'll benefit from that effort. The name of Jim's sermon that we'll hear today and Friday is, He Became Flesh for Us. Tonight, as we open your word and ponder this, may the old become fresh, and may the fresh become clear. May the profound depth of what took place at Bethlehem and before Bethlehem and because of Bethlehem, may those things become riveted pivotal in our thinking in all that we do over these next two weeks, all that we say, all that we reflect to others around us. The world is full of darkness, Father, but we thank you that the light has come. It penetrates the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, vanquish it, blow out the light. The light still shines. We thank you that a day is coming when the darkness will be banished and only the light will remain. And when those who are sons of light through faith in this Savior, King, when those who are sons of light will, will, will rule and reign with him in incredible privilege, unimaginable delight and blessing. And in that future day, we'll fully understand what our faith gropes to believe today. Thank you, Father, for these who have braved the elements and, and the risk and have come. I pray that you'll enrich our hearts together in our time around your word. Pray that as we draw nigh to it, it will warm our hearts and ignite within us fresh understanding and better grasp of what the incarnation was really all about. Help us tonight as we think of things familiar to be re-energized by their abiding truth. And from there, we pray that you will expand our thoughts through your word to the incredible, just incredible plan you put in motion of which we are the grateful recipients of your grace. I pray tonight for the burdens and the pressures that rest upon these friends listening. I ask that you would give them grace and faith to believe that you are orchestrating all and you are moving through every event that troubles us or that thrills us, and that you will not be detoured in your steadfast pursuit of the goal of your heart, Father, to conform us into the image of your Son, that he might be first among many brothers and that we might be qualified as his brothers 
to share with him in the new heavens, the new earth. So speak to our hearts tonight and grant safety as we leave and travel to our homes. Refresh us. We ask for your glory in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. There are many things about the celebration of Christmas that have changed. Uh, changed, I suppose, for me and perhaps for you. From the childhood experience of uh, coming to understand what Christmas was all about, learning that we really don't have Christ Mass, that uh, the Mass and all that pertains to the Mass was satisfied completely and forever at the cross of Jesus Christ. So we don't come to have a Christ Mass. But we do come to celebrate the fact that he became flesh for us. But the world around us ever presses upon us, not just with commercialism, and not just with the idea of gifting and receiving, not just with the idea of travel and family, not just with our focus upon family values and the warmth and delight that those values bring to our hearts, but the world crushes in upon us with dark realities, dark, dark cynicism. And over the years, um, pastoring, I've become more and more aware that there are more folks grieving in the pews on Christmas Eve than there are gloating in the promises. If you are able to attend a special Christmas service, whether it's the one coming up this coming Sunday or an Eve service, a candlelight service, whether here or there at home or anyplace else, or perhaps with your tradition you go to a service on Christmas Day, um, watch the people around you. Relax your own preoccupation with your own experience and ask the Spirit of God to tenderize you to what's going on in the pew beside you, around you. It was a Sunday morning several weeks ago when, since I'm no longer on the platform, thank you, Lord, <laughs> but I'm sitting in the pew, that I left the church profoundly troubled. We had a marvelous service. I, I wouldn't fault the music. I was certainly impressed and inspired by the efforts that went forth on the platform to present, to inform, to enlighten, to draw people to the Lord Jesus. But before I got out of the pew where I was sitting, a couple, two pews back, leaned forward with a prayer request. The couple sitting immediately behind me to my left shared a tear, a tearful burden. Two families in front of us in the pew ahead paused to ask a question and choked back some tears. Now, I'm not reaching for sentiment tonight. I, I'm, I'm not trying to <laughs> dump on your celebration of Christmas. Neither am I saying that uh, you or I 
can often do much about the burdens that surround us in the hearts and minds of people. But it sensitized me in a new way. It made me realize that when you stand here and you open the word, or when you sit there with people around you, there's a lot of pain in the room, a lot of frustrated expectations. And quite frankly, the world around us and its opinions and attitudes weigh more heavily upon our hearts sometimes than the promises of God and the faith to trust him through it all. The debate rages as to whether we should say Merry Christmas <laughs> or Happy Holiday, but that's just the surface of the deeper struggle that's going on. You see, what really took place almost 2,000 years ago, what really took place was something incomprehensibly wonderful. And bit by bit, if we're not careful, our view of that will become altered and, and we'll miss it. We'll miss it. Uh, a couple of nights ago when we met, we talked about the passage in, in uh, Philippians where Paul talked about how God emptied himself and became one of us. Tonight I want to talk a bit more about the big picture, where this fits into the large scheme of things. And I want to talk a whole lot more about some things that will, that will detour you if you're not careful. For instance, for instance, did God have a baby? In Bethlehem? Oh, you're not ready to risk an answer to that one. I'm glad. And yet, if your response was yes, I would ask you to think deeper. The baby was Mary's baby. The baby had her DNA. The baby had her lineage. The baby was born without the influence or participation of another human, another male, any male. In that sense, for sure, the baby was a miracle baby. But remember, the miracle baby was the promise of God through Isaiah in order to signal that this one is the one. God didn't have a baby. God became a baby, and there's a world of difference. There's something very cuddly and safe about a little baby. We're still the dominant ones in control. We can think what we want to and largely do what we want to with the child. The child's, child's pretty helpless, and if we're not careful, we'll think our way into an error that, that, that on that day, God was born. No, God wasn't born. God wasn't born. God had existed long before that. You need to keep that in mind. In John chapter 1, John begins with that marvelous affirmation. And remember, the whole purpose of John's gospel, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the synoptic gospels, much they share in common with each other. But when you come to John, John is a treatise separate from those. And while it deals with the same life of the same person, and covers the same historic span, yet John is very focused in his purpose. John wrote this book 
And he tells us why. But look at the way he starts. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning, verse 14, and that Word became flesh. Now look. And took up residence among us. You will hear language like this during this Christmas season, or oh, God sent his son. And frankly, the inference is that Jesus is the son of God. That is, that God created in Mary a body, and in that body, God had a son. No, dear friend. John wants us to understand that the one who came in to the womb of Mary had always existed in the beginning, in the beginning. That phrase could be translated more literally, in that time which is characterized as being the beginning of all things, in the beginning, as far back as you can go in your mind, in your heart, in your thoughts. When you go back there, the word already was the Word, and was existing as the Word, and at that time, that Word was with God. He wasn't alone. Now, that's very important. And that Word was not less than God. It was God. And God, the Word, and God, the God, we're in perfect harmony. That's what that phrase means when it says he was with God in the beginning. It means that he stood on the same rank with God. Now notice, there's no question, uh, that second phrase tells us that the word at the beginning already existed as the word and existed as God. But God had a plurality, or God was a plurality. Hold on to that. One of that plurality, the plurality of the singular God, one of that plurality, the one who is called here the Word, according to verse 14, did something distinctive. In verse 14, that Word, who in the beginning already was the Word, and who was God, and who was equal to God, and in every essence, God himself, that God, it says, became flesh. That's where we get the word incarnation. He became flesh. He previously existed in a form that was equal to all that his deity demanded and deserved. And he then put over himself, if you like that, or he took from the womb of Mary, a fleshly tabernacle. That's what the word means. He took up residence among us. He tabernacled among us. He put a tent on himself in Mary's womb. He became flesh 
means that he entered our world and came into our world like all of us came into our world. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And God the Word wrapped himself in a flesh nature, not just a body, but a nature. His eyes had collar just like ours. His hair, the most magnificent red hair you've ever seen. He felt pain when he smashed his thumb with a hammer in a carpenter shop. He could cry and did. The word God means that he's a cognitive thinking, I'm going to say rational, knowledgeable communicator. And he, that being, entered flesh, not just like a tent, but he put the flesh on so that the flesh became a part of him, or he became a part of the flesh, or he connected with our flesh in such a way that he became absolutely, totally, perfectly human. John says, he took up residence among us, he tabernacled among us. That draws all of the picturesque language of the Old Testament and shows that it was prefigured of Jesus. He, he dwelt, he lived, he moved, he acted, he responded, not as an alien, not as a superior being. He chose to live as a man, a human man. That's why you can read that Jesus, during the first 30 years of his life, he increased in knowledge, he increased in stature, he increased in favor with God and man. All of that tells us that, that, that God the Word did not remain distinct and apart from us. He entered into our condition, became one of us, lived life as we live it, felt pain as we feel it, had emotions like we have emotions, and so camouflaged his true identity, his, his, his true nature, that people struggle with thinking of him as anything more than just a man. Now, something else I want you to note from that context. We read in verse 14, the Word became flesh. That's this Word who was with God, who was one of God, who was with God, equal with God. This Word God became flesh, took up presence among us. We observed his glory, the glories of the one and only Son from the Father. Now, that language is carefully chosen. In order to identify the Word as distinct in identity from God, even though he himself was God, John uses these incredible words. 
And since the word came forth, entered our world into our flesh in a marvelous, unique, miraculous virgin conception, since that's the way it took place, John called him son, son, and he indeed was. He was, in every sense of the word, son of Mary, not son of Joseph. He would have been Joseph's son, what, legally, since Joseph became Mary's husband. And as the legal custodian in the home, the word, now a man called Jesus, the word would have been considered and been legally, absolutely um, uh, appropriate or legally entitled to all the benefits, all of the family heirloom, everything that the eldest son in Joseph's family of children Jesus legitimately had that. That's why it's correct to say that Jesus belongs on the throne of his father David, because Joseph, Mary's husband, was the legal, rightful heir to the throne of David in Jerusalem. Had the Jewish nation been organized governmentally independent of Rome's obsession, and Jewish corruption, Joseph would have been the guy sitting on the throne of and being king of Israel, the descendant, royal descendant from David. So, so Jesus would have inherited that role legally from the ancestry of Joseph. So he is known as son of Joseph. He's known as son of Mary. And there are passages in Luke where it talks about them being his parents, plural. Now we know that biologically that's not true because of the passages that explain that. But what I want you to see is that idea of son does not mean that God had a baby. God had a son. It's natural for many of us at this time of year to feel not joy, but loss. Not merriment, but melancholy. Jim is trying to take us above our current circumstances to see the reasons we have to celebrate. All of the loss, pain, and humiliation Jesus suffered was for us. And the title of the Christmas sermon is, He Became Flesh for Us. We'd love to send the message to you on CD for a donation of $7 or more. Details on how to make that happen are coming up. Right Start, the ministry, is not just Pastor Jim and a few of us support personnel. It's really a production of the Holy Spirit and a lot of people. People from New Zealand, the U.S., and everywhere. So thanks for your prayers and gifts. We're trying to replenish our financial reserves and finish this year strong. So this is a good time to give if you've been meaning to do so. And you won't be added to a mailing list and hounded when you contact us. Locate us on the web at rightstartradio.org and you'll find resources to help you grow in the Lord. You can play years' worth of radio programs on many topics, or you can play or download the sermons in their entirety. And getting the program daily as a podcast on the Apple platform is a great way to stay connected. 
Email us, donate securely, and much more at rightstartradio.org, rightstartradio.org. And or mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA. Or call 1-800-984-2313. That's 800-984-2313. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. Tomorrow, Friday, we'll hear the middle section of this message, He Became Flesh for Us. Please join us again right here for Right Start. (music) 